uh, either your Bible, uh, the Pew Bible, it's the text is, is going to be found on page 863. It's Luke chapter 7. We're making our way through uh, this, the gospel according to Luke, the good news as he captures it. As you're turning there, uh, I don't know, maybe most of you, I would assume, have at one point or another may uh, drive into situate, and on your way in, sometimes you'll see across uh, the water, there's a place where there's a house, a house, and then no house, no house, a house, no house. And once I was told uh, that that is because some of those houses have been, you know, uh, dealt with uh, because of storms that have come in, and insurance companies have said, you know what, you can't rebuild on this because uh, we just can't uh, insure this. It's too much of a liability. Uh, I don't know whether that's true, but you can imagine there are times when an insurance company does not want to uh, take that kind of risk. Obviously, we all face uh, liabilities, risks. We, we face threats and dangers in life, all of us, uh, at, at, at every season of life, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Wherever we find ourselves, there is no safe uh, you know, perfect place where you are, are buffered from all of that. We, we know that life, you can try to avoid uh, risk and, and threat and, and try to be safe. But, but the, at the end of the day, it's really not a question of that. It's how to, how to mitigate it and how to navigate uh, risks and threats. The, it, you, you, you work off of the assumption that there are storms, figuratively, literally, sometimes speaking, that will come in, not, not if, but when that storms come and disrupt. They, they will come and then they will return as well. There, there's tragedy, there's crisis, there's disappointment, there's grief, there is loss. Sometimes that gets punctuated in a particular time and even past year plus. Burdens, temptations, trials. You cannot move your house, your life, your dwelling away from all of that, just to some different place, storms will come. And that, that's precisely one of the reasons that uh, Jesus, at the close of chapter 6, the close of the Sermon on the Plain, which uh, Pastor Solomon did a wonderful job uh, teaching from last week, that Jesus gives us this vision, this, this picture of storms that come. And what, what does he say about that? He doesn't say if they come. He says when the storm, when the water comes... What do you want to be found doing? How, how do you want your dwelling, your life, your, your, your house, figuratively speaking? What do you want it to be like? And this is what Jesus says. Everyone who comes to me, two things. Here's my word and does them. I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house, dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. Flood arises, streams come, right? House is not shaken because it was well built, Jesus says. But the contrast to that is the person who hears the word and does not, or doesn't hear the word at all and doesn't do the work, doesn't follow in Jesus. That's like a person whose house is built on what? Yeah, anything other than rock. But it's even worse if it's sand, right? It's bad. It's, 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 it ends in, Jesus says, the last words of chapter 6 are, it ends in ruin. It shouldn't surprise us that actually that's the majority. Not the minority, that's the majority. Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction and few who find it, sadly enough. So why don't we prepare for the storm? Let's, let's prepare. Let's lay a foundation all the more. This morning, I invite you to stand. Let's look at God's word. Luke 7. We're going to read the first 17 verses. Hear this. This is where a rock is. After he, that is Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion 
That would have been a Gentile, not a, not a Jew, not a part of the, the covenant community. The centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they, that is the messengers, the, the mediators, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is, a wor- he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who has built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and he was not far off from the house. The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume upon you to come to you, but say the word. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And, my, and, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. He was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found faith, found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Moving on, verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up, touched the bier, and the the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You may be seated. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Let's ask his help. Please, uh, we would ask that you uh, would fill us, Father, with Holy Spirit, with faith, with hope, with trust in your word, in such, in, in such a way that it actually bears a fruit, that our hearts would be filled with faith so that we would run and, uh, and, and dig and, and plant ourselves uh, within the rock. You, our fortress, our foundation, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I'm sure you would agree that crisis Things like crisis, grief, and death uh, have a particular way of leaving an imprint on us, um, in, in, our, in, our, in, our, in our minds, on our lives. There's a distinct imprint that is left. This past week, uh, for a few days, we had a chance to visit with my family in the mountains of North Carolina, and I took uh, a couple of our boys out to go mountain biking at one of the spots that I used to go to all the time. As, uh, as a student, as a high school student. And I distinctly recalled, as we were riding out there, the sign that said Lake Powhatan. And immediately my mind went back to a time, uh, probably my junior senior year of high school, and a group of my buddies, we were heading out to this area uh, in the state forest to go mountain biking, and a, a helicopter began to fly overhead. And you could tell very clearly that it was, um, that it was the, the hospital's you know, uh, med flight you know, uh, chopper. And it, it landed in the, somewhere in the forest, and we were driving out. We got closer and closer. Of course, we could hear it. The helicopter eventually took off, and I arrived at the, uh, the shore's edge where the, uh, the beachfront was. There was a swimming area that's uh, all roped off, and I saw two guys at a distance that were familiar. 
And uh, these are two brothers. They're twin brothers. I knew them. Uh, they were at a rival high school that played against us in track. They were the best pole vaulters in all of the, the state. Uh, you know, big, rough, and tough guys. And uh, they had been with me the year prior in a lifeguard class. And that's what they were doing that day. They were lifeguards on the beachfront. But they were weeping. And, uh, and I remember approaching them, and there was such a, a commotion around all of this. And what had happened was a young boy had been pushed down uh, up underneath the water by someone who had uh, developmental problems. And they had taken another boy and pushed him down into the water. And uh, they, had, they had had enough sense to form kind of a, a combing you know, a human chain to find the boy. And he was uh, at the bottom of, of the lake. And they were able to, uh, to perform CPR. The, my two friends did everything that they possibly could. Uh, and didn't look very hopeful as they, they, they flighted him off uh, to the hospital. And I remember feeling kind of, you know, just, you know, words just don't have anything. You don't, you're, you're speechless. You feel very helpless. They felt helpless. And uh, they were overcome with emotion, understandably. I don't remember what I did, but we, we spent the rest of the afternoon riding bikes, and I don't recall praying. Fast forward a couple years later, I'm in college and uh, growing in faith. And one of the things that God used to grow me in faith, and maybe some of you can identify with this in crisis, but one of my dearest friends, a classmate in college, uh, we had... Uh, he experienced a, a horrible respiratory infection. He, he had sinus issues, and then it became respiratory. And, uh, and I, I kind of felt bad because we had gone on this backpacking trip in like two, three inches of snow. Uh, and, but it, it all escalated, and he unfortunately found himself uh, gravely ill uh, because of this respiratory. He developed some other, uh, I don't even remember the name of it, but it was so bad that he had to be on a ventilator for weeks. And, and it was looking very, very dicey. And uh, it looked as if he wouldn't even make it. And I remember his parents came into town, and, uh, and his dad stood in front of a large group of us on the campus and, and, and pleaded with us to pray. And we, we formed a around-the-clock kind of prayer vigil. And I remember with my roommate, I remember Matt and I kneeling on, on beside our bed. And, and I can't recall a time up until that point in my life when I had prayed with such earnest, uh, wanting and desiring to see uh, God move and, to, and for God to work. And, and he did, and I remember just being so overwhelmed uh, with joy, but also fear as we were invited to go see Pat in the hospital. As he laid there in the hospital, uh, he still was on a ventilator, uh, but he was kind of rounding the turn, and I remember being fearful that I would see him and behold him and just begin weeping. And, uh, and I just remember believing in a new and fresh way and in the power of God, and, and praise be to God, Pat is now a, a pastor and a church planter as well, a father like me. I've learned more and more that one of the greatest expressions, I've seen it amongst you all, of love is to go to Jesus on behalf of someone. It's part of what we see here. There's, there's great love in this passage, compassion. There is emotion in this text. Two stories, the two, the two stories uh, converge together, and I think that's uh, you know, God's design. Just two, two big headings, right, for these Two accounts of healing. Great faith. You see it listed in the order of service. And great grief. I know that's not profound. Uh, but it is interesting, isn't it? That the two of those so often can go together. Not, not always. But sometimes there is great 
distress and grief and great faith that runs together. Well, first of all, this great faith, the centurion who here is in great distress. Yes, of course, he has means. He's a person of influence. He oversees, uh, you know, over a hundred troops and he's responsible. He's, he probably has a great deal of, of, of wealth and access to things. Uh, but he has this beloved servant, and he feels helpless because there's nothing. I, presumably, he went to all of the, you know, the, the Roman uh, you know, physicians, the Jewish physicians, whatever he could find. And then he heard of Jesus, and Jesus' power and his, 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 his mercy and his might. And so he sends these, these messengers to go on his behalf. He has this beloved servant. Uh, verse 3, he heard about Jesus. Uh, they, they commend to Jesus his generosity, his character. He's a worthy man. He's, he's a generous man. Come and, and heal his servant. It would be a, a great thing. But the centurion here, of course, Jesus in his kindness himself goes and travels along with them. And, and it, you know, again, just to recount, he's at a distance and the centurion sends someone out and says, no, 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 just please, don't, I don't even want to presume upon your time and I'm certainly not worthy to have you in my home or near me. Please, just, just say the word. I believe he can be healed because you have authority. I know what it's like to have authority. Just say the word. He will be healed. Of course, to the amazement of all who did return to the house, he was made well. Verse 10 says that. We know that Jesus was a true human, fully, and like us, beings, who whether we like it or not, are emotional. And we see that in two accounts here, both of these accounts. You see it because here he's, he's, he's amazed, he's astonished at the centurion's faith. And later we see with the, the widow, we don't know that Jesus sees any faith in her or not, but we do see that Jesus from his heart, from his, from his inner being, experiences compassion. Verse 9, Jesus marveled at this centurion. And then he, he turns and he makes note. He says, listen, I haven't even found this. And of all the places you expect to find it in such, uh, such greatness, this great faith, haven't even found it in the covenant community in Israel. Look at this man. Behold, what great faith. Just a note here. Jesus, I want us to appreciate the fact that faith is not magic and Jesus is not a magician. He is Lord. Now, there may have been people that traveled in this great crowd and other great crowds that thought him to be a magician, but when they encountered him as Lord, it involved a great deal more. And, and, and we, we see that, right? The testimony. And as Lord, he does honor this man's faith. But don't think to yourself, and I, I know the temptation, but if, if only I had, you know, some kind of great faith like this man, and in its, in its sincerity, its fervency, its, its, its depth, that it would all work well for me like it did for this guy. But, but don't miss this. Sometimes it's, it's really the simplicity, even the frailty of a weak faith that God honors because it's the nature of it. Actually, you know what? The most important thing, I want to just highlight this, faith is an instrument. It's not the cause. It's the, it's the object of our faith. It is He, it is Him, Jesus, the object of our faith, who has the power. The centurion clearly doesn't trust 
himself. He doesn't even trust himself to be in the presence of the holiness of Jesus. Doesn't view himself as worthy, which is, of course, accurate. And it's not because he's a Gentile. It's because he knows himself to be a sinner and God, the God-man to be holy and set apart. He, he doesn't presume. He's, he's, he's contrite. It's commendable. There is great faith. And then, of course, with the story of this widow, there is great grief, tremendous grief. There's a surge of people wanting to hear Jesus, right? We know that because verse 11 says that this great crowd follows him into the city of Nain. You can imagine there were disciples that knew him well. There were others that were intrigued. I mean, can you imagine the buzz, the excitement? There's this huge crowd converging into the town. I've never heard a guy like this before. I've, I've never seen the kind of things that he's done. This is, isn't this amazing? And they are astonished themselves. And the, the, Jesus is in the center of this crowd and this great buzz uh, uh, you know, of activity. There's no cars. There's no, there's no horns. There's no, it's just the foot. You know, it's just like the, the, the crowd and they're, 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 they're traveling by foot into the city and it's noisy. And yet there's this other crowd, verse 12, same word, great crowd came as well. But theirs is the funeral procession. It's somber. There's probably a commotion as well, but that's, that's not curiosity. It's, it's mourning and, and, and cries and wails that would have been coming out of this grieving party. It must have been a, a well-known and well-loved young man because practically the entire town, it says a considerable crowd was traveling from the town. And these two converge. I imagine it was something like uh, what uh, many of you may have seen yesterday. Uh, some of you know, but a week ago in Pembroke, two young men uh, who were Pembroke High School graduates tragically died in Pembroke in a car accident. And yesterday they had the, the funeral procession as they left, took place. There was a tremendous outpouring of love and compassion as people lined the streets for a long, long way to show support to these two grieving families, for Joey and Billy's family. It's truly beautiful. It's fitting. Now, again, back to our text that the two crowds come. The center of the two crowds, right? One is the widow and one is Jesus. And somehow amidst all this commotion, it's like that moment that you're being really loud and you realize someone just started praying or talking. <laughs> like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, because there's just two different crowds. And at the center of them, here is Jesus and this widow. And they come together. And what happens? Jesus turns to her and says, Do not weep. Now that would seem almost insensitive. That would seem, that would seem practically coming out of anyone else's mouth but Jesus, downright cruel. True? She has every reason under the sun to grieve. She's got a double grief, and we're told that, Luke records it for us, that it was her only son, and she's already a widow. Sometime before, we don't know, she's her husband. So now it's, it's, it's a double grief, and even more so for her, in that culture, in that time, women would have been tremendously at the disadvantage to not have a, a male in her life that she could rely upon to, to, to support her. She is in a, this, there's no, there's no uh, short-term you know, disability in, in, in insurance. And, I mean, this is a, there's no social structure to support her uh, you know, financially. She's in a very dire place in every respect. She has every reason to be weeping. 
you know? But why does Jesus say this? Because if you look there at verse 13, he has compassion. He is, he is deeply, the, the, the word there means deeply moved to the very seat of our person. In his heart, Jesus felt compassion. And again, with just simply a, a touch, a word, this young man is resurrected. This is not common uh, in Scripture. But here it is recorded. Luke's the only one who records it for us. And Jesus is showing not only his authority, but yes, his compassionate love. He brings peace and hope and health to these people, and specifically to this individual, this woman who is mourning. Of course, when the boy begins to talk, the young man's speaking, naturally the people uh, go and give him a high five. No, no, they didn't do that. They were overwhelmed with fear. They, they worshipped God. They, they, were, they were stunned at the God is with us in, in more ways than they really knew. You know, the God-man is here. They worship God. They are astounded by Jesus. What, what if you had been the, the centurion or, or the widow? <clears throat> and, and, and Jesus... Worst case scenario, okay? Jesus says, listen, you know what? You're right. You're not worthy, and I don't have the time. Or, or you, you encounter Jesus, and you, you have a hearing. You, you have an opportunity to see him in person, and he ignores you. But that's not what we see of the Savior's character. And, and this is recorded so that it would show forth the, the might and the mercy of the God-man, Jesus. It, it's not enough to be, of course, astounded by Jesus. We, we should be embracing him by faith. I mean, that's my question to you this morning. Do, do you marvel? I mean, do you trust him? Not, not only in crisis and in grief, which is, which is nat natural, it begins with, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Not, not only in times of, 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 of loss, and it's coming to all of us. But in the day-to-day, -day, the ins and outs, the, the, the valleys and the peaks. Let me close with just a brief word about faith, death, and sin, okay? Just a word here about faith. Who, who in this account that's recorded here, who, who here has faith? You, you, you know I'm okay with you talking back to me, yes? Um, <laughs> The centurion, of course. Trick question. Everyone does. Everyone in this account has faith. 
Even the, even the, even the messengers who came, they, they said to him, yes, he's worthy. They, they trusted in his merit. You know, you hear this from time to time. They say, well, so-and-so is a person of faith. So-and-so is not a person of faith. Not true. We, we are all trusting in something. Our own imaginations, our own assumptions, our own deductions, our own abilities, our, uh, another religion, another God. Hopefully it's not a little G false God. Hopefully it's the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're all trusting. We all have faith. Everyone does. What is the object? Some of you have and will come to amazing gospel accounts in the New Testament like this. And then, and then you say to yourself, I, I would love to have faith like this, I, but, and, I, and, I, and, I, and surely I would if I could just have been there. If I could have seen these things transpire, I, I just know it. I, I would trust him more. I would trust him sincerely. I, I, I would have no other choice. I know I would. One scholar, Michael Green, puts it so well. It is not the case, it's a little bit of a long quote, bear with. It is not the case, as some people say, that if I'd only been there, I would have believed. No, there are, were plenty of people there who did not believe, although unimpeachable evidence was spread repeatedly before their eyes. The human heart is capable of profound resistance and deep self-deception. It is only when we trust it's only when we trust that we find salvation. The faith may be a last resort. It may be superstitious, it may be theologically deficient, but if it is placed in Jesus. Object. Don't miss this. It binds the sinner and the savior together and that is what he came Jesus to bring about. The, it doesn't matter how feeble, it doesn't, doesn't matter how confused, maybe it is, but the transfer of that trust onto the object and the person and work of Jesus accomplishes something so remarkable. The union, the mysterious union that we celebrate center to our Savior. That's what we're going to come to the table and remember and celebrate and enjoy here just in a moment, the sacrament. It's our union with Christ. By faith, the instrument, we grow to appreciate the benefits of being united to Christ. He is, he is the only perfect and holy mediator. The guys that, he, that the centurion chose were not good mediators. They did their best, but they were confused. He's worthy, he's worthy. It was the centurion who knew he wasn't worthy. Trust him. Will you, will you ignore him? Will you trust him? As simple as that. And I'm and I, and I'm talking about that again, that day to day. Will you trust him? Not at, not at death's door, not at the, 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 the point of grief and sorrow and affliction like you've never imagined. I, I pray you, and I will, and I might need you to come help me. Do you hear me? You come to me. You come to me. You say, Troy, remember what you told us? But I'm talking about trusting him with your time, with your doubts, with your struggles, with your money, with your emotions, 
Would you trust him with your sins? Would you trust him with your questions? Would you trust him by faith? He's worthy. Would you trust him by faith in, in, in the smallest steps of obedience to your conscience? Some of the small steps are pretty hard to take. True? Let me say a word about death. Whenever I do a funeral, whenever I do a graveside, I always say this. I say, folks, we are gathered here because we have a common friend, referring to the deceased. I say, we have a common friend and we have a common enemy. The enemy is death. It is the final enemy. I know you, we, we read an account like this and we say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Jesus doesn't do that for everyone. Because I've prayed for sick people and, and I've, no, I've known death way more than I ever wanted to. And you're right. But consider this. Even the centurion servant and even the young boy here who was raised still died. I mean, I kind of wondered at times for Lazarus, you know, Jesus wept. His emotion came forth. His power did too. He called Lazarus out of the grave. And I wonder if Lazarus said later on, gee, now I get to die two times. I mean, come on. For everyone Jesus healed, they eventually succumbed, like every single one of you and me, to death. Unless he comes again this afternoon. We'll pray for that in just a moment. How about it? Can I get an amen? It is a foretaste. Jesus did not put all of, of, of the grave diggers out of business. He, he, did, he is coming again. This is a foretaste, the demonstration, an illustration of the final and greatest healing when he returns. And what he says at the end of Luke chapter 18 is, when he comes again to earth, will the Son of Man find faith on earth? There's a resurrection coming. It's appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. And everyone will be raised, some to the judgment and and destruction, and others to life. Those united to Christ. There is a resurrection coming, a final and full healing. Yes, there is healing for some now, temporarily. But I'm talking about the final and full deliverance from not only the effects of sin, the power of sin, but the the very presence altogether. And you may say, yeah, 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 yeah. But right now I'm grieving. And there's been times for some of you this past year, you say, how could he do this? How How could he bring this? Why me? Why now? Why this person? I don't understand. Why have you, God, why have you brought this, this great burden and, and, and sorrow and grief? Well, to that, let me just say a word about sin. Sin is the root of all of this. Ever since the garden and in the garden with our parents, we sinned. We have fallen under the curse of sin and our disobedience and our desire and will to, to be God, to make the, call the shots, 
and God has brought a curse upon all creation, and death has entered the world. Perfect people in a perfect world don't die. Plain and simple. Death, nevertheless, is unnatural. It's unnatural. And it is at times so woefully painful to endure or to witness. I know. It stirs at times even anger within us. Maybe that's you today, and if that is, let me say this to you. You you, you don't need to turn that anger toward God. You need to turn that anger toward sin. Sin is a murderer. All sin, the trajectory of which leads to death. This was, for me, this past week, this was like a revolutionary thought I came across in my studies. If sin has taken life from you, and in the end it always does, if sin has taken life from you, then you ought not be enjoying it, excusing it, entertaining it, playing with it. You should hate it. Sin is a murderer. What, what, are, we, what are we trying to do make, making peace with, with, with worldliness and sin? We ought to be waging war against it. And when not if you fail, and when not if the storm comes, we should be turning again and again and again to our compassionate Savior, who is a man of sorrows, the Bible tells us, acquainted with grief and affliction until he comes again as our mighty judge and Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we look to you right now. We acknowledge, we confess, we delight in the fact that you are the Lord of the living and of the dead. Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would help us to to let these things come into focus about the person of Jesus. Forgive us for our resistance, our foolishness, our sin. Forgive us for the ways, the, 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 the multitude of ways that we have tried to build and prepare or not prepare at all. Now we find ourselves on sand. We want to be back at the rock. We want to be hearing and doing your word. So help us, Lord. Lord, I pray, uh, today, for those who are grieving, uh, there's been many reasons and many challenges. We pray specifically, per- particularly for these two families in Pembroke, the Birolini and the Hickey families. Lord, as they mourn, would you please shower upon them your mercies? Would you support and sustain them? Please have mercy. Have mercy, Lord, on Pam Delpino and and Ron as Pam grieves the loss of her mother. Lord, I pray you would meet those today who struggle with doubts and and emotions that are are heavy, questions. Lord, I pray that they would have faith and they would exercise it to trust you. Lord, I thank you today for answered prayer, even the progress that we've seen with this pandemic. Lord, even on a rainy day, we can thank you for the beauty of spring. But our greatest hope is not just around the corner or just some change of circumstance. Our hope is not that someone so or 
whatever circumstance would, would be improved or healed. Our great hope is in your return, so we pray you'd do that soon. You would return, and we're going to live feeble, frail perhaps, but consistently as your children, sons and daughters by faith. Lord, we pray even now, as you taught us that great outline of prayer, 